Hello, hello, hello. So welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So before I go into today's episode, and this is a good episode, very, very good episode. I was taking no psychological on it. So the big thing that I want to announce is I have a couple of one-to-one spaces left for coaching with myself. So you're interested, just pop us a DM or click on the link below. And I have a couple of spaces left for the Female Fat Loss Program, which is starting on the 9th of January. So what is the Female Fat Loss Program? It is group coaching. So I keep the numbers small in the group so everyone gets attention, what they need. So the group is a Facebook group which everyone can share their, their meals, can share their ideas or whatever they may need into the group so everyone's like-minded and on the same journey. It will break the kind of no-nonsense approach that a lot of people have, the all-or-nothing approach that a lot of people undertake and adjust in that mindset. It will also help to give you training that is tailored to you, nutrition that is tailored to you, free recipe books with my fitness pal friendly recipes and will help to get you ready and set up for after Christmas and getting away from that those silly approaches that have been taken, those fad diets, those quick approaches that have you've gone for after Christmas. So this program is a six-week program and the course is 169 for the six weeks and you'll be working on me. You get weekly check-ins via email with myself. You get hands-on coaching from myself. You get weekly Q&As. You get a lot of different things that I don't think a lot of other programs that are out there. I'm not dismissing programs. I don't know what a lot of things are like, but this program is good and the the, the, the the approaches that we have taken and I have taken with clients has helped over a thousand people. So if you're looking and interested in working with me on a one-to-one basis, click on the link below. If you're interested in working with me on a group basis, click on the, the, the link with the female fat loss group. So I really do hope that you enjoy the episode and i hope that you are interested in work hey everyone and welcome to the next episode of the shane walsh podcast so today's episode is a good one i came out of this feeling like this is going to help with an awful lot of people and i'm delighted to kind of have the guest that i had on so thank you to dr nitu bajakal to, to for coming on and it was it's, it's an amazing and open conversation so dr nitu is a gynecologist with over 35 years experience in women's health and she's the co-author of living peace pcos free and an amazing website free resources to empower and char- take charge of your own health is the message that she has and we spoke about an awful lot of kind of different topics everything from hrt the six pillars of lifestyle that will help you kind of manage your perimenopause and menopause kind of we talk about what to look for when losing weight rather than looking at losing weight as losing weight look at it from a different perspective we talk about pcos and perimenopause we talk about a load of different topics and lifestyle being the forefront of what your health is we talk about the impact of genetics and the role that it can play we talk about a load of different things and i went down different rabbit holes that potentially i didn't think it would and i'm very grateful that it did and we talk about pcos we talk about perimenopause and menopause and it was it's openly brilliant and i highly recommend to you to get the the amazing book that uh, dr nitu has kind of created which is living pcos free and there are amazing resources in on our website as well which she has asked me to put the link in for you they're free you can just download them and you can share them whatever you meant to do but if you're looking for a no bs very evidence approached to PCOS for someone who has worked on, on perimenopause for someone who has worked with a hell of a lot of people with over 35 years experience then I would highly recommend to listen to this episode. Dr. Nitu, how are we? Thank you so much for coming on. Fantastic Shane, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to be able to talk to so many people from different communities and I just love the fact that you're from Ireland, very close to my friends uh, Dave and Steve Flynn of the Happy Pair. So thank you for inviting me. 
And you even braved the uh, the Irish Sea or the sea in Ireland I, to go down to Greystones. I had a sleepless night, but I tell you, it was one of the best things that, right up there in many of the things that I've done. So I just it loved it. Up. Loved it. It's it, it's amazing. And Greystones is a beautiful part of the country as well. For anyone who isn't aware of what you do and your amazing book that was, I think was released in April uh, this year. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself and the, the kind of the basic idea of the book? Yeah, I um, I was a regular doctor. I uh, trained as an uh, OBGYN uh, back in India. I grew up in Calcutta, uh, spent my schooling years there, went to medical school in Pondicherry, which is a little sleepy French-speaking town in uh, deep south of India where I met my um, partner and my husband of, I don't know how many years, 37 years, um, and then moved to Delhi to do my post-graduation in Obsangaini. Uh, we were about 29 years of age, and this was about 30, 31 years ago, when we felt there was more to just settling down and living an academic life. We had done all the exams in India, uh, and my husband's an orthopedic um, back surgeon, and so we thought we would travel the world. <laughs> we ended up in the UK and we're still here uh, in London 30 <laughs> years later. No regrets, but um, lots has happened. And as I, as I uh, trained and finished the rest of my training that I could do every exam that could be done in the UK, I managed to do. But I realized as I went along that I was operating on a lot of women. I was uh, doing a lot of medical treatment uh, as well as delivering thousands and thousands of babies and actually making a lot of my patients really happy. Uh, but over time, I was realizing that there was something missing in my toolbox, something that didn't feel right. I was seeing women. And when I say the use the word women, Shane, I mean to include anybody, however they may choose to identify. That's okay. really important. It's a very important part of what I do. Uh, so anybody who is assigned female at birth, however they may choose to identify later, I want to include them as well. But I use the word women just for ease of um, use. Uh, but I realized that I was seeing... Um, people after they had had the problem, you know, they had got gestational diabetes or diabetes during pregnancy, or I was doing um, laparoscopic hysterectomies or keyhole hysterectomies in women who had got womb cancer. I was seeing, uh, you know, women who were struggling to conceive. And I felt there must be something, there's something missing here that my medicines and my surgery is not completely sorting out. And that's when I came across lifestyle medicine. And I was fortunate enough to be among the first cohort in 2018 to um, train as well in lifestyle medicine to be able to use it uh, for my patients. I had been using some form of it for all the many, many years. I've been a, a OBGYN and a women's health expert for over 35 years. I've got clinical experience of at least 37 years. Um, and so I've got a very wide range of uh, clinical skills, but um, it was only when I started to uh, apply all this to my patients, I started seeing some fantastic results. And I felt a little bit upset and a little bit angry uh, because um, 
And then I, I, I dealt with it and I moved forward because I myself had gone through uh, what is known as premature ovarian insufficiency or early menopause. Uh, it's not the real, the right term or, or premature menopause as used to be known at the age of 38. And there was no family history at that point that I had worked out and I couldn't understand. Was I being bullied? Was there stress? Or why did my period suddenly stop? But it was also the time when the WHI study and, and the big studies came out and there was a lot of misinterpretation that hormone replacement was dangerous for you. So, you know, that was something that was not uh, available to me, although I was just ready to become a consultant and I knew that was the right thing for me at that age. Um, it's slightly different when you're at 51, the average age of menopause where women may choose or not choose to do hormone replacement. At 38, you should be on it. But whatever it is, I, there was not, no other help available. I did not know anything about lifestyle approaches. I had to work it out myself. You know, I was just grateful that I was physically very active, never had to deal with excess um, um, body weight and things like that. But there were still a lot of things that I didn't know. And so I had to actually do all that um, work myself. And so I felt that that's not how it should be. There should be resources. And when I started uh, looking in, there was so much science available for human health that I was just shocked. Why was I not taught this in medical school? Why was I not taught this in, in my postgraduate uh, degrees? Why was I not taught this in the UK? You know, there was absolutely no education, probably two or three hours uh, of nutrition uh, education. Most of it was what was in a calorie or, you know, what is a, uh, how many calories are there in a fat, uh, a gram of fat or carbohydrate or protein. There was nothing at all about the impact of lifestyle or nutrition. And I just felt that I was letting my patients down. So I had to empower myself once I realized that th that was the way forward. I also happened to turn vegan um, about 22 years ago, around the sort of time when I became menopausal, about six, a year later, six months or a year later, when I was really struggling with symptoms. But my daughter, who was nine, then came home and she decided that she was going to go uh, vegan. And I didn't really understand the implications of that. And I thought, if my daughter's going to do it, I've got to do it. So both my daughters and I we went vegan because, you know, that's what you do. I thought as a good mother, you've got to make sure that you follow what you're, you know, you, I didn't want them to be on a poor diet. I knew you could be vegan by eating uh, crisps and white bread. Uh, and I knew that I had to, you know, up my game. And I was just astonished that my daughters were always coming top of the class for all their nutritional <laughs> requirements. But I still the skeptic in me or the scientist in me, because I knew nothing about the health side of things, did not put anything together. I just thought, oh, that must be my genes. You know, that's why I have so much energy. That's why I feel so good about myself, not realizing the impact that lifestyle tends to have. And it's not just nutrition. There's a whole host of other things that go in lifestyle that um, actually contribute to how one feels or does. And, you know, that's now been my life uh, aim that while I still do clinical work, I still operate, I still see patients, I still prescribe medicines. I still am a proponent of Western medicine because I think it's so amazing. It saves lives, whether it's vaccines or drugs or surgery when you need it. I think lifestyle has to be the forefront from the time you're born till the time you, you die. Really, there is no aspect of health, whether it's women's health or just general human health, planetary health, uh, and, uh, you know, benefits from us following healthy lifestyle measures. 
I really like that message. I think that's a really, really important message because I think from someone who is like trained PT and nutritionist, a lot of people that kind of come into my kind of ecosphere, they're like, well, I'm going to go for this supplement or I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It's kind of like, no, if we manage your stress and your sleep a little bit more, that small minute change can make revolutionary things. And I know people, a lot of people who I work with have young kids and young kids can wreak havoc on sleep. So it's not as easy for everyone, fully aware of that. But it is, it's kind of small, like look after your lifestyle and things will kind of, obviously there's genetic predispositions to loads of different factors in there. That's not what we're talking of about. Of course, of course. Uh, and I think what people have to understand that genetics really does load the gun, like they say, while lifestyle pulls the trigger. But genetics does only contribute anywhere between four to uh, 10 or 15% of what's happening. Uh, and, and, you can't let genes write your destiny. It's just not something I'm prepared to accept for my patients or for myself. I'm not going to allow that just because I've had a premature um, ovarian uh, insufficiency. I'm not going to let that determine how my rest of my life plays out. And the same thing, I want people to understand there's a lot we can do for ourselves. It doesn't have to be 100%. You don't have to get 100% good sleep 100% of the nights. What you, you don't have to just say, I will never be stressed. No, you've got to have systems in place so that when things go wrong, your child is up with a sore throat uh, or whatever it is. What are you going to do to look after yourself so that you can be a better parent? How can you be a better person at work or better partner or better uh, you know, self-care for yourself? It has to start with that as well. And if you actually aim for perfection, you're going to fail. What you have to do is you have to see where you are at. And so this is what I tell my patients. You know, they say, oh, I don't I'm scared of fruit. I've heard fruit contains sugar and I've heard sugar is bad for you. So I've got to spend time explain the science that, you know, studies have shown that the more fruit you eat, the lower the risk of getting diabetes. Oh, but my doctor told me to stay away from fruit because I've got diabetes. Oh, I definitely can't eat mangoes or grapes. Can I? No, you have to understand, you know, what blood sugars do. What fruit does, and we're not talking about fruit juices, we're talking about uh, the whole fruit. And studies have shown that when you eat fruit, you actually lower the risk of getting diabetes. And when you eat fruit regularly, and really there is no upper limit, but you know studies have shown up to 20 fruits, for example, but you don't want anybody eating 20 fruits because you're not going to eat so other stuff. It couldn't be too great. <laughs> yes, but we know that the risks of complications of type 2 diabetes reduces when you eat fruits. And we know the risks of type 2 diabetes, the complications are horrific. That's what fills up most of our hospitals with cancer and, and amputations and blindness and kidney failure. So it's all about, so I tell my patients, okay, is there any fruit you like? Oh, I love satsumas. Okay, will you eat a satsuma every day, one satsuma a week? Will you eat that? Oh, yes, I can do that. Okay. What else do you like? Oh, I don't mind grapes. Okay, so will you eat a handful of grapes along with it? Yes, I can do that. And then say, do you like some berries? Oh, I like strawberries. Okay, can you eat some strawberries? We know the, the benefits of berries are huge. So you just start making it less daunting, less overwhelming by saying, can you make this little change? Oh, my daughter doesn't like any um, vegetables. Okay, does she like cucumber? Oh, yeah, she likes cucumber. <laughs> you know, Or she likes her peas or she likes carrots. Oh, she does like to dip it in hummus. There you are. You make a little plate and you start with a small step. 
It's just understanding. Yes, we would love people to eat 10 to 13 portions of fruits and vegetables because that's the Canadian guideline. That is the Japanese guideline. What does it actually look like, 10 to 13 portions? It's actually one handful or 80 grams is a portion, which means a small child, it'll be a tiny piece of apple is one portion for the child. Yeah. For us, it's it's a small apple or a couple of little satsumas. So what or so basically the way you think about it is throw in some three or four fruits in a day, have a big uh, salad, maybe a soup in winter, and you would almost a nice vegetable soup. You will get your 10 portions easily. Two broccoli florets are one portion. It's not that hard, but you don't want to start there with somebody who's not eating a single fruit or vegetable. You want to start where they are. If you've never walked, are you going to suggest somebody go and bench press and uh, do uh, marathons? No, you're going to say start walking first in your house, then in your garden, because even 15 minutes of physical movement has been shown to reduce mortality. So understanding that you start where the person is and then you move forward, whether it is with stress, whether it's with sleep, whether it is with uh, food, you will actually make bigger gains. At least I see that in my practice every single day and doing it without judgment and also telling the person, talk to yourself like you would as if you were talking to your most loved person, to your best friend. Would you tell your best friend your fat, you're ugly, you are so-and-so, you're no good, you, you, you will never be any success. That's not the words that you would use unless you really dislike the person, right? So yeah. if you're not going to use that for your best friend, why would you use it to yourself? You are your own best friend. Nobody will love you or your body more than you, not your mother, not your father, not your partner. You have to look after yourself. Doesn't mean you have to be selfish. There's something called greater good. But self-care and love starts with yourself. Because when you love yourself and when you feel contented, not with material things, but when you feel grounded, that's when you can do your best work, which is what I hope most of us are on this beautiful planet for. I really like that there's so much, there's so much in there. Um, the four to 15% of their genetics are kind of what drive it. It's, it's, I think that's a huge stat that a lot of people can get caught in up those stories that that's what's driving things. It's my metabolism, all this kind of stuff that it's like I was a fat cater, a chubby cater, whatever. And I really like that element of kind of like bring it back to self compassion. There's an amazing book by Kristen Neff called Self Compassion. And yes. one of the, the exercises that she gets people to do in the book is get a photo of yourself as a kid. And ask yourself, would that person be happy how you're talking to yourself right now? And it's it's so powerful, but it's so, so simple. And it's like, would you talk to yourself the way you're talking to your friend is probably the most highlighted one that you hear? Or would you, yeah, um, or else would you let your kids hear you talk the, about yourself? The other thing I do want to, however, highlight, um, Shane, is that, um, you know, here I'm not taking into account socioeconomic privileges or yeah. deprivation. Um, you know, things that we know, we've seen this from COVID, you know, those who are from uh, socially deprived backgrounds, economically deprived backgrounds, immigrant populations, they may not have the same accesses. There are so many inequalities, race, um, you know, uh, sex, gender, all these things are so uh, interwoven into health uh, and mental health and physical health that we should never negate those impacts as well. Uh, but in every situation, if you are in a position of privilege, think how we can make education uh, more 
available to people? How can we make people aware of the uh, the situation? Because most people don't have access to information. So what can you do to make that information available to yourself as well as to the community in which you're living? And that will have a ripple effect. I love that. I love that. Um, one of the, the big kind of things that you kind of spoke about openly there was kind of your journey through kind of perimenopause and menopause and kind of early early stages for yourself when you got it earlier in life than what is, I think it's what, 51 in the UK is yes. the average? The average, the age range is between 45 and 55, yeah. but yeah, yeah. 50, 51 is the average age all around the world, actually. How much of a role, I know I've, I've spoken about kind of perimenopause and menopause so often on the, the podcast and I've had some amazing people on it. And there, I'll, I'll link in the show notes other episodes on that. So if people are looking for what it means, peri is the stage before menopause is when there's no cycle for 12 months. And that's me breaking it down into the most simple form. But that's essentially what it, it is. There are other factors, obviously. Yes, I have loads of information, all free, completely on my website. So hopefully you'll put that on. Right, and there course. are so many fact sheets on perimenopause, menopause, uh, hormone therapy, what nutrition you should eat, what why soya is important, what supplements should you take and what supplements you should avoid what is lifestyle medicine all these fact sheets that everybody can access completely free whether you're a health professional or a, a regular member of the public you can download it read it in your own time forward it to people and you know you can scratch out my name if you don't want it at the bottom of it or whatever it's not a problem at all bajakal.com <laughs> I will put that in the show notes yeah. so people can click on that link and they can download it themselves. Yeah. So thank you for that. The the kind of like the some of the most common kind of symptoms that kind of come with that are the likes of the night sweats, the lack of the sleep, the lower mood. What can be done to kind of counteract that through lifestyle or nutrition? I know it's very open-ended question, and this could be a topic by itself on a yes. full episode. But this is my next of- book. <laughs> it should be coming exactly. out next year. So, yes. Yeah. Um, so, while we know there are huge benefits of taking hormone therapy, it's not available for everybody. Uh, it's not many, not everybody wants to take it. Not everybody can take it, especially if you have uh, a certain family history, uh, if you yourself have a history of cancer, if you have a history of clots and thrombosis and lipid issues, uh, if you have, um, you know, if you don't get on with it. There's so many reasons why many people cannot take it. But whether you can, you take, sorry about my dogs, <laughs> they're getting excited. Uh, so whatever it is, whether you choose Western medication or not, which can be a lifesaver for hot flushes because hot flushes are caused, we think primarily because of the change in the temperature regulatory system in our hypothalamus that is very sensitive to the small fluctuations of temperature caused by drops in estrogen. And that is why estrogen is one of the best ways of treating hot flushes. And so that's why hormone therapy works very well. But as I said, what if you are in that group of people that can't take it or don't want to take it? And what if you are somebody who can take it? It doesn't matter. It's never too early and never too late to make lifestyle changes. Why? Because it's not a different way of living for preventing Alzheimer's. It's not a different way of living for reducing menopausal symptoms. And it's not a different way of living for preventing prostate cancer. It's the same, the one and the same kind of living. And so we know that the earlier you start, lower are the chances that you will actually have, um, you know, very um, uh, debilitating menopausal symptoms. But that, of course, if you are having symptoms, you know, and you can take medication, do 
but lifestyle has to carry on. How? So you want to make sure that you are um, trying to eat mostly what we call trying to follow six pillars of lifestyle. So we know that we know this uh, information because eight out of 10 people in the UK uh, and in the Western world suffer from hot flushes, uh, which are this intense sensation of heat and then followed by cold. It can last for a few seconds to a few minutes. It can be once a day. It can be several hundred times a day. It can be very debilitating. So there are certain things that one can do. We know that uh, in Singapore or in Hong Kong or, or China, it's only about 15% uh, of women will actually complain of hot flushes. And that may be because many women are not coming forward, but also it may be because of the fact that the way their lifestyle is, the fact that their diets are low in saturated fat, which is almost exclusively found in animal foods. They also are living in smaller bodies, so they're not carrying excess body weight because we know those who have excess body weight, the estrogen often um, is trapped in your in your body fat but it acts like an insulator uh, your the the fat in our tissues and actually makes hot flushes much worse so paradoxically even though women who carry uh, who are in larger bodies and who carry excess weight are at increased risk of breast cancer and other estrogen fueled conditions whether it is PCOS or endometriosis and and uh, other uh, fibroids and things like that they also suffer more from menopausal symptoms and so we know that aiming for a healthier body weight helps to reduce not just menopausal symptoms. They can, uh, in fact, reduce them significantly. In, uh, and there have been studies to show that regarding hot flushes. They also reduce your risk of getting any cancers because we know obesity is one of the sort of it's the second uh, uh, is very close after tobacco for causing cancers. So we know that just being living, um, reducing your body uh, uh, weight to a healthy uh, body weight would actually make have a lot of dividends in other aspects as well. We know that if you're carrying excess weight, you have a higher chance of Alzheimer's, type 3 diabetes uh, is known as, you know, also type 2 diabetes are at higher risk of, higher risk of blood pressure problems. All the chronic top 10 killers tend to be lifestyle driven. So we know that when you are trying to aim for a healthier body weight, and it's hard to lose weight, so weight loss should never be a goal. Weight loss should be something that happens as a side effect, a positive side effect. How does that happen? By actually making sure that you have a goal that I want to run a marathon, I want to play with my grandchildren, I want to live till 100, I want to be able to walk to pick up my children. It doesn't matter what uh, I want to be able to run with my dog. It doesn't matter what health goal you choose. I want to have clear skin. Whatever health goal you choose, you will use that and then Work with your six lifestyle pillars so that weight loss, if it is desired, becomes a positive side effect. And so the uh, six lifestyle pillars include, sorry, yeah. No, no like that makes complete sense what you're saying. Rather than saying, I want to lose weight, you need to have an element of a why, why you want yes, to do that. Correct. To be around for your grandkids, to be around for your family, to Travel, reduce your to cholesterol whatever. methods, whatever it may be. But having be that anything. why, I love that. Yes. And so... It's never too early to start bringing in these lifestyle pillars. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine explained what lifestyle medicine is. It is the use of evidence-based therapeutic approaches that helps to prevent, to um, treat, and sometimes put in remission or reverse many chronic health conditions. Now, menopause is not a disease. 
It occurs naturally to half the world's population, but you can suffer quite significantly from it. And also because we live in that, men you never finish with menopause. So not having periods for 12 months means that you're menopausal. And then women, if you, if you stop your periods around the age of 51 and the average life expectancy in the Western world ranges anywhere between 80 and 83, 84 years, Hong Kong and Singapore is 88 years, you have three decades of the, your best years, your golden years, you don't want to be suffering arthritis and uh, multiple operations and things like that. And have because one in three women will die from a hip fracture, so osteoporosis and not looking after their muscle strength. So looking after your bones, looking after your muscles at an early stage, you can't suddenly wake up at 70 or 75 and say, I'm going to get really fit. It is never too late to make changes, but the earlier you start, there's more money in the bank, right? Yeah. So that's the important thing to understand. So you start by making changes and encouraging your children as well. So what you do is looking at, it's like a domino effect. So first you start looking at sleep. How can I maximize the hours of sleep that I can have? We know that generally for the vast majority of the population, between six and seven and nine hours is optimal. Uh, teenagers and young children may need much more and they do need much more until into their mid-20s. So don't pull off the, the sheets of your uh, teenage children. They do need that sleep. That's when they grow. But for us, sleep is really important because it is a time when the DNA gets repaired. The, the junk cells are uh, swept away or lots of work goes on at night. It's not just by a matter of chance that evolution has just designed sleep for us. So aiming for seven to nine hours, I know what sleep deprivation is. That's one of my pillars that I'm really, I fall poorly on because for 35 years I did night shifts. And then of course, having early menopause didn't help. And my personality of wanting to do everything in the day doesn't help as well. So actually taking that time out to see how can I improve my sleep? You know, do I need to layer my clothes? Do I need to uh, have my meal early and eat in the circadian rhythm? So I try to eat in the early hours before six o'clock, before seven o'clock, so that I have at least three hours before I go to bed, you know, things like that. You want to try and prioritize. I have lots of um, help available, uh, you know, as to how you can actually uh, prioritize and maximize and optimize sleep. Are you somebody like me? If you drink a cup of coffee after midday, you're going to be buzzing till <laughs> the next day. You know, those are the things that you need to find out because alcohol, caffeine can affect your sleep. Stress can affect your sleep. When you eat, Eat a late meal, you know, when you eat a meal that is not satisfied you fully, you know, not having enough complex carbohydrates in your meal. All these things can actually make a big difference when how you will sleep. And of course, when you're menopausal, you can get hot. So trying to have perhaps a separate uh, little uh, sheet or duvet for yourself uh, allows you to still be in the same bed, but not having to, you know, take on, take off all the, and layering your clothes can also make a, uh, keeping your room cool can a bedroom cool is really helpful little things like that we, we don't have to it's not a whole sleep podcast but I'm just saying if you actually prioritize sleep what happens is you wake up you're less stressed when you're less stressed your cortisol levels are down so you're not that you're more inclined to want to uh, exercise so stress is a second lifestyle pillar everybody has stress some of it is good like coming on to a podcast you're wondering what's Shane going to ask you and things like that but there's also bad stress chronic stress when that happens inflammation increases so 
If you cannot get rid of those stresses in your life, it could be because of, you know, work or partner or relationships or whatever it might be, find ways of managing them. So maybe spend five minutes in your car before you come through the door, actually taking some deep breaths and doing some breath work. Maybe consider going for a walk with a friend in in the woods uh, or in a park if you can. You know, maybe uh, trying to do some dance in your room, whether it's Bollywood dancing or Irish tap dancing, whatever it might be. Find something that will lower your stress because you can't get rid of the stress. What you can do is find ways of mitigating that stress. So when you address that stress, what happens is you're likely to then ring your friend, ring your community and say, oh, can I come and volunteer or will you come for a walk with me? So you exercise, you're physically moving in outdoors, in nature, with a friend, laughing, all these things. So the third pillar would be exercise, physically move, moving your body. So it doesn't have to be in a gym. But yes, strength training should be part of physical movement because it's really important that you focus on resistance training because that's the way you're going to preserve your muscles. And the earlier you start, the better it is. So, you know, jumping on a trampoline or a trampet, skipping, uh, all these things. You don't have to go to a gym. You can use your body, uh, own body and do body weight exercises, Pilates, yoga, all these things use your own um, you know body weight to actually build resistance but of course you know if you have the access and um, um, you can afford uh, seeing a personal trainer then it is good to be part of a program so that you're actually learning good habits so that you can that can carry you through the rest of your life but again as I said it's never too late there may be people in your uh, podcast your listeners may be in their 40s 50s 60s 70s I've had 80 year olds make changes But yes, the earlier you start, the more you will reap. So you have uh, sleep as one of the lifestyle pillars, stress as the next lifestyle pillar. You then have exercise or physical movement, uh, which is different. Physical movement is different from structured exercise, but it is all of it is needed uh, for us. And there are guidelines. You want to do at least 30 minutes in a day, uh, but ideally you want to do an hour a day. And that means running up the stairs rather than taking the lift, carrying your own shopping, parking the car as far as possible, taking your dog for a walk rather than asking a dog walker, little things like that. Exercise. The fourth pillar is is having a, a community, a rich community. Uh, so that you can actually give back to community and they can give to you in many ways. And you can decide whether it's a book club or a walking club or a charity place that you actually uh, help out in or gardening, whatever you might help to do an allotment thing. Um, the next thing is you want to try and stay away from alcohol and and risky substances like smoking and things, because repeatedly there is don't be fooled when people say uh, red wine is good for your heart. No, it's sitting around with people that actually when you have that glass of wine, because you want to understand that alcohol is a class one carcinogen. And in menopause, even a couple of glasses will shoot up your breast cancer risk, but also make your menopausal hot flushes worse, your sleep worse. So it's understanding that there are no health benefits from uh, these risky substances. If you're going to do it, do them very, very, very mindfully. So We've had sleep, stress, physical movement, community, avoiding risky substances. And probably in my book, the most important pillar is nutrition. And I would strongly urge people, especially with what is happening uh, with our bodies, the risk of chronic illnesses, as well as what's happening to our world, which is burning around us. um, You want to have a planetary diet or a, a 
plant-based diet. So as much as you can. So again, you don't have to go 100%, but a plant-predominant uh, diet. And by that, I mean not foods that have been made in factories and plants, but plants that you can actually recognize. So when I do workshops, I'm just shocked as I see uh, children in schools, inner city schools, they can't recognize most of the fruits and vegetables. And it's sad. So what does a plant-based diet look like? It means trying to shop later on in the evenings when the foods are cheap, going to your world um, uh, shops, you know, the world cuisine shops where you can actually buy beans and things in bulk. So you don't have to go for the quinoa and the avocados. You don't need that at all. What you do want to have is an abundance of fruits, local seasonal fruits, if possible, rather than exotic fruits, if you can't afford it. Uh, having lots of vegetables, the green leafy kind is particularly good. Uh, you want to have lots and lots of uh, intact or minimally processed whole grains, which basically means brown rice, red rice. Yes, if you can afford quinoa, millet, uh, amaranth, barley, oats, things like that. You want to try and in increase the amount of legumes you have because we know all long living societies tend to base their diets on beans and green peas and soya and lentils and dals and pulses. You also want to eat plenty of tubers, which means potatoes with skin. Irish, you know, you must love your potatoes like I do. I eat my body weight in potatoes. So what you do is you don't eat them chipped or fried. You want to put them, uh, you know, you want to boil them. You want to mash them. You want to stick them in the fridge. And then when you reheat them, they have something called resistant starch, which then uh, normalizes your blood sugar much better and doesn't cause spikes that people are so scared of when they eat sweet potatoes. Uh, potatoes. Sweet potatoes, yam, uh, all these are great additions and they fill you up as well. So they are not only just lower in calorie, a plant-based diet is low in calorie, but bursting with micronutrients, is rich in micronutrients and vitamins. You want to have nuts and seeds. You want to have no dish that passes by into your uh, lips without having some sort of herb or spice on it, whether it's parsley, basil, coriander, cumin, turmeric, cinnamon powder on your porridge. It doesn't matter. Try and increase the herbs and spices. So we're talking about fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, which are beans and soya and green peas and lentils, tubers, which are potatoes and sweet potatoes, herbs and spices, nuts and seeds, and make water the drink of your choice so that you're not having sugar-sweetened beverages, fruit juices on a regular basis. Remember, treats are treats. So when you include ultra-processed or junk foods in your diet, uh, and the standard Western diet has 60% of their, our diets now is ultra-processed foods. They have very minimal or no fiber, and they have a lot of uh, uh, harmful substances that can actually drive weight gain, can drive all the other um, uh, inflammatory markers that increase our risks of heart disease and things like that. So understand then keeping animal derived foods to a minimum. Why? Similar to salt, oil and sugar. If you remember, 70 percent of our population now is carrying excess weight, either overweight or obese. And we know you want to eat calorie light foods that come with a lot of micronutrients and antioxidants. So if you're going to eat, it's not that any food is bad for you. Yes, if you want to eat, you can eat eggs and fish and meat and chicken. But the lower you make that amount, if you can go towards a plant exclusive diet, that's great. But otherwise, eating mindfully, because we eat only about two to four pounds of um, three to four pounds of food 
a day. And so every time you choose a egg a white omelette, you're missing the chance of having tofu scramble, which will bring you much more health in many ways. Every time you choose a chicken soup, you're missing the chance of having a minestrone soup that is bursting with beans and vegetables. But yes, as long as you understand that the vast majority of time you're choosing, you know, uh, 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 dates and, and cashew nuts, for example, over a donut, then you are always going to be a winner. If you make, you know, so there's nothing like people will often say, uh, my patients will often say, oh, I'm so sorry. I've been such a bad person. I ate a piece of chocolate cake. I was doing so well. There is no shame in any of this. All you have to think is, did you want to eat that piece of chocolate cake? If the answer was yes, eat it, eat it without guilt move on so that the next day you're choosing your broccoli and your, um, you know, soy yogurt with raisins or a date or, you know, a bunch of grapes. What you don't want to do is beat yourself up in the moment. So you're not enjoying that particular food. You're feeling guilty. It's not a, a, a diet of deprivation. A plant-based diet is a diet of joy. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel energetic. But you need to be in control. What you have to tell yourself is, if somebody says, come on, have that beer, have that glass of wine, you say, today, I'm not drinking. Today, I'm not drinking. Instead of saying, I've given up alcohol. Or launching into a sermon as to why alcohol is bad, because Dr. Bajikal said it's a class one carcinogen. Nobody cares in a pub. Yeah. All you want to say is, today, I'm going to choose sparkling water with lime because it looks like gin and tonic, but I'm going to have it. And Nobody's going to be knowing about it. Or today I'm not drinking. Today I'm choosing not to have that chocolate cake. So when people say, come on, you can have it. Don't say you're on a diet. Don't say I can't have it because I'm on a diet. All you say is I'm choosing not to. You're in control rather than the cake being in control of you. I love that message. And it's literally what I try to drive home on a daily basis with clients. It's like, I love the way they kind of like inclusive like with the whole th element of side of things with kind of like the plant-based diet, it's including more things in your diet and your, and a lot of people's definition of diet is restriction or mass destruction, yeah. or it's like, yeah. no, no, you're adding something to your life. And if someone start trying to start off adding more plant-based foods, just have a little bit more than you're having currently as a simple step. It's like learning how to go from crawling to walking as a kid again, whatever, it do, whatever you do, do not try to go from zero fiber a day to, 30 40 grams your stomach won't like you it will just absolutely end up i eat about 90 grams of fiber a day uh and and if somebody did that they would be on the floor writhing so it's so important that you yeah. allow your gut microbiome to slowly and i don't know if uh, you've had dr alan desmond on your uh podcast he's a fellow Irishman, uh, and and uh, he's a gastroenterologist, and he explains about the gut microbiome so well. And you've got, got the gut microbiome contains trillions of bacteria. They are internal family. And so what you want to do is slowly feed them, because when you have bacteria that are used to not used to fiber at all, and fiber is sort of one of the cornerstones, is a carbohydrate. It's one of the cornerstones of health. It decides a lot of things, including, you know, trapping the excess estrogen, reducing your breast cancer, risk, reducing your prostate cancer risk, lots of heart disease risks and things like that. You don't want to go from zero to 40 grams of fiber. You want to really cook your beans soft. You want to make sure that you've rinsed your cans of bean. You want to make sure that you can actually mash them completely. You want to have small portions, a teaspoon, a tablespoon, rather than saying, oh, I get bloated. That's because the bacteria that are used to 
uh, eating chicken and, and meat don't know what to do with fiber. So you get all those symptoms, you know, uh, lactose intolerance is a huge problem. 80% of the world's population is lactose intolerant in some way or the other, especially as you get older. So it's really important that when you start feeling bloated and uh, having symptoms or are known as IBS, you actually will realize that the when you start crowding out those foods, so it's not a question of, I can never have foods that I want to. Yes, I am uh, an ethical vegan, so I will choose only plant foods, but also knowing what I know now, I'm so grateful that, you know, I can be not just vegan, because you can be an unhealthy vegan as well. Yeah. I, I want to be a whole food plant-based vegan. I want to be a, a somebody who is very aware that there's no point having a healthy diet on an unhealthy planet. So I do want to make sure that there is a, some future for the children who are there, the grandchildren who are there for future generations, for the children who are starving everywhere else. So what I want people to understand is making that small change rather than thinking, what can't I can't have? I can't have biscuits. I can't have crisps. I can't have that chicken breast. No, don't think of it like that. Think of what you can have. I can have this abundance of fruits, this abundance of vegetables. I can make these amazing recipes. I've got so many recipes in our book, uh, Living PCOS Free, as well as free on my website. Uh, lots and lots of recipes that will actually, you know, are because I'm a foodie. I love my food. So, <laughs> you know, I want to eat delicious, flavorful food. And you'll be amazed how many world cuisines are actually, this is nothing new. Most uh, 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 people around the world have eaten very plant-centric diets all their lives. Yeah. So it's just discovering. It's rather than demonizing potatoes and beans and reading people who have got, a, you know, something to peddle. Just think logically. What do the most of the people around the world eat? They tend, it's only with... The recent times that there is this huge influx because of factory uh, filled uh, animals and, you know, turkeys are getting culled now because of an infection. Um, and, and so people, you know, hopefully will have tofu, <laughs> tofu turkey rather than okay, a turkey, <laughs> you know. But what I'm saying is that it's not a, a diet of deprivation. Don't think of you can have whatever else you want to, but think of what you should be having. Think of how much sleep you should be getting rather than how much sleep you can't get. Because there's a domino effect. When you don't sleep well, you stress more. When you stress more, you reach for the donut. When you reach for the donut, you don't want to exercise. When you don't want to exercise, you feel ashamed of your body. You then don't reach out to your community and your friends. And so you then reach for the uh, cigarette or the alcohol. All six lifestyle pillars, you can either boost them or make them, you know, so dependent on each other that they actually bring you down. And that is something that I just want people to take away. Make small steps. Think deeply about what you want to do for yourself. Don't think so much about, you know, how much you're going to uh, gain materially. Of course, everybody wants a certain amount of income to live happily and uh, things like that. But beyond that, you know, this fast fashion and all these all have Im Im impacts on our mental health as well because you know that they don't give, bring you joy you know deep down when you read a lovely book it's so much nicer or when you've had a good laugh with a friend it's so much nicer you treasure that much more than yeah. any scarf that somebody might buy you for your birthday yeah like we were even talking off air 
um about kind of india my kind of time over there when i was like 18 it was kind of like it brought back warm and fuzzy memories you kind of remember those more than someone giving you a brand new jacket or yourself buying a brand new car or whatever it is so i think that's real small sentimental stuff but it, it adds up over time and builds credit as you've kind of said and i think the big message for regarding the nutrition element that you brought in and kind of kind of hopefully driving home and hopefully it's landing with people is adding things into your life you get to move yeah. you get to train you get to walk you get to spend time with people add in things into your life rather than trying to restrict yourself and getting frustrated with like i always say to clients like if you have like a checklist of before you pick your next next diet whatever that maybe is are you realistically going to stick it for longer than a week if the answer is no it's probably the wrong thing for you you can always like look at the things that we're advised to do as kids have some fruit get some movement in a little bit of variety and spend time with family and friends correct. we're taught that as a kid correct but yet we lose that somewhere along the line because we feel we want more we get because we stop these- listening to ourselves shane what has happened is we are listening for that next health guru that next dr bajekal coming and telling you what is good what is instead listen to yourself listen to your intuition you know deep down anybody who tells you that sleeping uh, you know, restfully at night is not important. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I know I used to be that person. I used to always say, you don't need more than three hours of sleep. I, I went with three or four hours of sleep for half my life. I've probably done my health quite a lot of damage. So, you know, deep down sleeping well, eating, you know, plants, uh, you know, laughing, stressing less, these things, avoiding excess amounts of alcohol, all these things will go a long, long way. So when you stop listening to others and listening to yourself and making those little shifts, you will actually realize, people will realize how wonderful this life is. And there's always hope, you know, that I am somebody who's an eternal optimist. I refuse to give up hope. I just want to do the, I don't want to be blind to what's happening, but I, uh, absolutely a believer in the power of humans and i'm very convinced that it's us in the grassroots levels because sadly the governments fail us the people in power fail us so we need to push for change but we also need to be the change you know how can you advocate to your uh, your uh, the people around you if you yourself are not doing what you think is right it's hard isn't it it is hard. You get caught up in that kind of rat race looking for more and your comparison yeah. thing kind of comes in. It's a hard, it's a hard one to kind of, I think you you think you almost, unfortunately, you think you almost have to go through it to either to come out the other side and then you realize yeah. what's important. I hate that whole thing that you have to go through it, yeah. but I do but that's think. that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. To a point. <laughs> that's okay. But, you know, it's when you gather um, knowledge and awareness around you that um, that awareness may come much earlier. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't. You don't have to wait till your sixties or seventies to realize. Oh, you know, buying that sports car didn't bring me that same amount of joy that actually that holiday with my family really did down in um, you know Greystones. <laughs> you know? So it's just working out what really but spending time is i think because we rush from one thing to the other that time may not be uh, available easily to us and just taking that time to you know introspect and think about things actually can make a big big dividends to your life and the people around you i i really am a great believer of that 
I love that. Like, there's so many powerful messages in, in today's chat. I think the last question I definitely want to lead into is in, in relation to kind of PCOS because it's, it's, it is, it's the main premise of your, of your book. And one of the things that I probably haven't covered or haven't covered enough would be the element of kind of PCO, PCOS with kind of with perimenopause. Like, do the symptoms get a little bit more difficult or do they get easier or is it the typical nutrition and kind of medical advice of it depends? <laughs> Um, so I have a whole chapter in the book uh, yeah. about how menopause affects uh, PCOS. And one thing we do know, there are some, there are, polycystic ovary syndrome is the most common endocrine disorder, the most common hormonal disorder to affect women of reproductive age. And while we say one in 10 uh, people have it, we know that certain subgroups, like those who are trying to conceive, who have uh, infertility, those who are Asian, Hispanic, uh, um, from uh, certain other communities or if they are living in larger bodies their the risk can be as high as 20% 25% so one in four people may actually have pcos and the sad thing is 75% of women will never ever get a diagnosis because the symptoms of irregular periods they might go to see a gynecologist they may have acne so they might go to see a dermatologist uh, they may go to see a trichologist because of loss of uh, a scalp hair they might go to see a beauty therapist for removal of excess hair these are all signs of androgen excess which is one of the hallmarks of polycystic ovary syndrome irregular periods or missed periods anybody not having uh, periods within the 23 to 24 to 35 days so they're having 40 day periods 45 day periods 50-day periods, not having periods for a few months. That's not normal. It is never normal, except right just before you stop your periods in the perimenopause and things. And um, the first few months or a year after you start your periods, menarche. So really, anybody who's having this delayed or missed or irregular periods, even if they don't have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to do certain blood tests. You have to take clinical history of missed periods plus um signs of androgen excess of uh, acne that persists into your 20s or cystic or nodular or painful acne, uh, excess hair growth on your uh, face, on your chin, on your back, on your chest. Um, these are, and then of course, there are lots of symptoms that are not even talked about enough, which we haven't talked about. Disturbed sleep, disordered eating can affect up to 50% of uh, people. And so just telling people to go and lose weight because eight out of 10 people with PCOS will actually live in a larger body, but two or three out of 10 won't. And so it's a very complex condition. We don't know what actually causes it, but we think insulin resistance. So it's a cousin of type 2 diabetes. But I discuss all this in very patient-friendly, public-friendly language in the book, um, along with my daughter, who herself has the condition, which is why I chose to write this book, because initially I was writing a general book. And she came and said, Mom, why, when you're an expert with 35 years of experience in so many different areas, are you writing two pages about each condition? Why don't we write about something that is so stigmatized that nobody talks about? And so that's how, and I was, it was meant to be like a 150 page book, turned out to be a 470 page book, but I don't want people to get put off because a lot of it is recipes and affirmations and case studies and all the myths and the myth busters and understanding that it's not one or the other. There's no medication shaming. You may need medications. You may need surgery for a variety of things that happen. You may need fertility treatment, but lifestyle and uh, behavioral strategies have been endorsed by every single 
uh, expert group all around the world. All the guidelines talk about it. Sadly, they don't tell you what lifestyle you should actually follow, except to say a healthy lifestyle. Now that is like saying, <laughs> what does that mean? And because we know that type 2 diabetes responds beautifully to uh, a plant-based diet, I have uh, centered along with all the other lifestyle factors that we have. So part one, part two, and part four is for anybody. I have had so many men write to me how much they have actually enjoyed the book. Uh, but uh, I do talk uh, about using plant-based diets because they are calorie light and nutrient dense to actually help to reduce the inflammation that is driving polycystic ovaries, help to reduce insulin resistance that is driving polycystic ovary syndrome. And so I talk about what tests one may need, what... Uh, options. There is no cure for the condition. Yeah. You have to understand that. You have to be able to be in control of it, just like you need to be with most uh, chronic conditions. You need to try and never let it out of the of, of the of the cage. You know, that's really important that people understand it. And in menopause, there are some uh, uh, benefits uh, because uh, other people catch up with you when, when it comes to, you know, excess weight or uh, and also PCOS with menopause. The menopause tends to occur uh, two years later. So in some ways that is a, a, a blessing plus the fact that periods tend to get more regular towards the end and hot flushes tend to be less in PCOS. But um, we also know that uh, it, there's no increased rate of death uh, from cardiovascular disease uh, in menopause, which uh, is an increased risk factor for those long, there are longer term PCOS risk factors. So womb cancers increase, gestational diabetes or diabetes during pregnancy. In fact, the US uh, spent $8 billion in healthcare uh, from type 2 diabetes related complications and uh, pregnancy-related complications directly of PCOS and still not a public health issue, which is why my book from 150 pages became 470 pages or whatever it is, uh, because I wanted somebody, anybody who's having the condition or somebody who has a loved one with the condition to actually understand and make these changes. And they don't have to go to several different books uh, and, and, you know, misinformation. I wanted that information to be there. That's why I didn't make it in color. I just wanted to make sure that it's accessible to people. We've gone to libraries and given books and things like that so that people can access it for free. That's that's as much as I can do. Plus, I have information on my website because my goal is not that, you know, I, I, I can make any money as anybody who's an author knows you don't make money unless you're uh, um, J.K. Rowling or somebody like that. What you do it is you do it to you want to empower people, you want to energize people. And polycystic ovary syndrome, actually, interestingly, for men in your audience, actually is not a condition of the ovaries. It's not a disease of the ovaries. It's actually a, a endocrine disorder, which is your hormonal disorder. And that's why men, a big study of 170, I think 170,000 men, I think in Oxford, uh, the Oxford study basically showed that men have PCOS characteristics too. So, you know, other than of course, the uh, fertility uh, side of things, they can have metabolic syndrome, they may have uh, uh, family members with type 2 um, diabetes, they themselves may have type 2 diabetes, increased waist circumference, uh, high triglycerides, uh, actually um, male pattern, balding, early balding, um, and um, you know, other symptoms that are uh, associated with PCOS. 
but are seen in men. That's how we know that actually polycystic ovary syndrome is not a disease of the ovaries. So people who can't get pregnant often get worried because the doctor says, you probably will never get pregnant, go away. No, actually you can. You just have to bring in the right lifestyle measures and seek the right help medically. So there's no medication shaming. It's not one or the other. Lifestyle medicine and Western medicine go hand in hand. What doesn't go hand in hand is quackery and, and unproven things. So but lifestyle medicine depends upon evidence. You have to use science. And that's what um, you know. my book is based on, on the science and the facts and what is the available information we have. It's a, it's a brilliant book and uh, your ability to remember stats and papers is quite scary. It's uh it's <laughs> a unique doing this ability. For 40 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like even just to pick numbers and like where are they coming from? Uh so yeah, no but thank you. Like the book the book is incredible and if someone's looking to kind of educate themselves because I know sometimes with the likes of kind of books around hormones and perimenopause, PCOS, endometriosis they can be very aimed towards the likes of nutritionists and dietitians and PTs and stuff that kind of get bogged down in a lot of the, yeah. the, the jargon. But the unique ability that you have to break down the most complicated information, to break it down to someone who is completely new to it, who's looking to kind of take them step by step approach to it. That's not talking down to them. No. But also just teaching them and educating them, having useful little tips that they can take with themselves, as you've talk, spoken about with the nutrition of one step at a time, that element of community and knowing that you're not alone on that, that journey to yourself as well, sharing that story with other people. Because as you said, there's so many people with it. There's so many people going through the next chapter of perimenopause as well. It happens to everyone who has, who may have a cycle or has a cycle. So I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on. And we've gone, I haven't ans- asked any of the questions that I had sent over. <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> I know. Um, but I get, where can people, I'm going to put in the link to the website for the, for the, the perimenopause thing. I'm going to put in a link for the book as well. Where can people find out about more information about yourself and any other podcasts? There's so many podcasts that you've done as well. I know you don't listen back either. So, uh, Basically, my website, neetubajekal.com, has got about 50 different fact sheets. A lot of them are women's health related. Uh, Many of them are lifestyle medicine related and all the confusion about soya. I don't get paid by any of these. Uh, So it's uh, lots of recipes on it. So neetubajekal.com. I have all the, a lot of my podcasts are linked to that as well. And a lot of my articles and a lot of my presentations that uh, doctors and students can use I have no problems they can download those and use them and you know they don't even have to credit me with that Um, and uh, I'm also active on social media so I can reach the younger population so I'm active as Dr. Neetu Bajekal on TikTok and on uh, Instagram and uh, my only aim is that you know if you've picked up something today then pass that on to somebody else we never know whose life you might just save I like this so much in there and I've written down like a lunatic beside me here so <laughs> I and I know people that I can hear kind of clients questions kind of coming out of it already so but thank you so much for, for coming on and thank you so much for the work that you've done over the years and thank you so much for the amazing book that you've created thank you thank you so much Shane I really do hope that you have enjoyed that episode with Dr. Nitu Bajakal. So that I, it's an amazing episode and there's so much insight into it. You probably need to listen to it again because it's PCOS and perimenopause and menopause. And they're two things that are out there and people don't necessarily understand. The information is always improving on them as well, which is great. So I really do hope 
that you find some points of it or all of it informative if you're interested in purchasing her book i would highly recommend click on the link below and get that click on the links on on the website as well follow on social media as well so i really do hope you've enjoyed that episode if you have please share it with friends please share it up on your stories leave a review whatever it may be the more you do so the more awareness that i can bring and get to a new audience new people that can learn from various different things i really do hope that you've enjoyed the episode